This is the podcast that we ask our guests from in front and behind the camera, how did they get their foot in the door? What was the key to unlocking their success? What's their story? Oppenheimer has already won a whole host of awards. It is nominated for an impressive 13 BAFTAs and 13 Oscars. Our guests today are at the very peak of the film industry. They are nominated in their prospective fields for the BAFTAs and the Oscars. Hoyt van Hoytema is now Christopher Nolan's go-to cinematographer, working with him on his past four films. From the terror of hereditary to the heartbreaking marriage story, Jennifer Lame says editing Oppenheimer was a breeze in comparison to working in reverse on Tenet. And last but not least, the already Oscar-winning composer Ludwig Göransson. This is a national emergency. Detonator charge. against the Nazis and I know what it means if the Nazis have a bomb first of all congratulations I mean um, Oppenheimer is an epic which seems to be sweeping the, the world not just the country it's also one of the biggest films of the year isn't it yeah I think so I mean it's been doing very well we're mm. both you know uh, excited and uh, intimidated <laughs> yeah yeah it's good but in terms of uh you've worked with christopher nolan multiple times coming on board for this one was there was the process any different i mean is there something that you do specifically for each job to prepare for it uh, i mean of course you you do things very specific to every job you do uh in a technical sense you know every film is very different from from the other you know both subject matter and the way they want to look but uh, at the same time, I always like to th say or think that, you know, uh, when you've done four films together, the, you know, the best prep for your movie is in a way the last, uh, the, the last three films you did, you yeah. know. Um, uh, I, I always think that sort of the best foundation for a good sort of cooperation is chemistry and, and, and reference, you know. So, you know, uh, after having done so many films together, you kind of you kind of understand each other on a, on a, on a, on, a, on another sort of on another plane. You know, a lot of things don't need so many words, and, and you don't need to talk so much about certain things, and you know, you, you don't need to raise so much questions because you know the answer already to mm -hmm. so many questions as well. Very often, you kind of straight away can dive into yeah into the sort of the nitty gritty of it. Mm -hmm. of the, um, you know, specific technical challenges, maybe. Sure, sure. One thing I, and forgive me, because I don't, you know, I'm not a cameraman, I'm not a cinematographer, I don't know much about the technical side You're of great it. Great with the iPhone, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You use IMAX cameras, but a lot of this movie is very intimate and very close, and I feel like that's quite a, a revolutionary thing. Is that, is that, I mean, I've never, Christopher Nolan's movies, and the ones you've done in particular, it feels like that's kind of the first time that's been done. Yeah, I mean, we have we 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 have always attempted it in a way, you know. It's it's and 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 we have always sort of closed in a little bit on that very specific sort of dream we had or wish we had, and that is that you know 
IMAX cameras, they are traditionally designed as, you know, uh, things to, 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 you know, communicate spectacle or to register epic landscapes, uh, uh, you know, and scope. Um, and uh, we always believed that uh, that would be also a perfect tool, you know, to, to, to dive into the macro and to dive into intimacy and, 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 and and be very small and subtle mm. uh, and so we have been working very hard on you know uh, uh, developing lenses that would allow us that we could put in, in, in front of that camera that that would allow us to get closer and that would allow us to get more intimate and then you know um, started to find ways to shoot portraits with it and 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 <clears throat> you know effectively an IMAX camera is very similar to you know what you would what you would know in photography is medium format photography is like the old Hasselblad uh, you know uh, cameras and you know if you look at at the old uh, medium format portraiture it has a very specific look to it and it's 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 a very sort of uh, almost tangible way of photographing uh, you know, it's it's it, it apart from the Christmas, the, the the sort of depth perception is 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 very very beautiful and very very lively and soulful, and that's something that we thought, you know, with the same parameters in the IMAX camera, we could very much bring towards uh, to towards the IMAX camera towards um, you know our shots in the film, and uh, and that's what we've been working with. You know, we 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 started testing certain portraits on black and white in the beginning with Killian and you know when we saw those you know appear in front of us mm. and on a projection screen they were magic they were very mm. special you know and I, I always like to say you know in the in, in the older films it's the scope and the landscape but in this film kind of our faces are the landscapes you know mm. Mm. Uh, the faces is the landscape and the eyes are sort of the infinite horizon that you would see uh, you know mm. Mm. And, and, and sort of the projection that you can, or the illusion that you can even see beyond the horizon, you can see into somebody's eyes and you can almost sort of read what's going on behind it. Mm. And I like that concept and, and, and that's how we really got that going. I mean, it, I don't, you don't need me to say it, but the film looks incredible. I can tell by the way you talk about the technical side of it, you're obviously very passionate about what you do. How, how did that love of filming and, and making things look beautiful where did that come from were you a kid when this this happened yeah i mean listen to, uh, but uh, it's a misconception that i i like to make things look beautiful i'm i you know that's kind of uh, the least interesting to me you know mm -hmm. uh, uh, for me it's much more about you know uh, making people or trying people to identify with with with, with the images they see Ultimately, you know, when you're shooting something for cinema, you know, the last thing you want is sort of to people, uh, for people to sort of marvel over, you know, the prettiness of, of the stuff mm. you're doing. You want your audience sort of to lose themselves in, in, mm. in, into the film. And I guess it's a distraction, isn't it? And, 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 it, and it, it's a little bit of a distraction, you know. Uh, Things can become beautiful, but but it's it's not an objective. An objective is 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 for me. It's always to create a connection between the audience and the subject of the film. You, mm. You're you're kind of as a as a photographer, you're kind of that bridge. Mm. So um, uh, 
in a way, you know, you, you want to look adequate. You want to, you want to, uh, you know, you want you want to you want to just be so direct and so pure as possible. I'm I'm always thinking, you know, I don't <laughs> want to make it, you know, sound too pretentious, or, mm. you know, but. When things are too pretty, I always get a little icky, or I always feel <laughs> I always feel a little bit bad about it. But no, I mean that makes perfect sense. Did you and and this starting your career and everything else, just for the people that are trying to get to where you are and become a cinematographer, get into the camera world. What was your start? My start. I mean, uh, as a long time ago, I studied film. You know, when I was like uh, my very early twenties, I went to Polish film school and. In, in Lodz, in Łódź, as they say in Poland, you know. Um, very early on, I uh, I think it started with seeing a retrospect um, by director Nicholas Roque, who used to be a, who used to be a DP. And I sort of became aware that, you know, visuals in a film had very much impact to, you know, how you could feel and how you mm-hmm. could make an audience feel or, you know, you, how you could prime them to really buy into moods and, 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 you know, how you could get in a way loose in the atmosphere of a movie and how that can sort of then open you or close you down to, you know, to, to receive storylines or emotions. Um, I, I, I don't know, it's, it, it's just a way that you at some point start looking at films. Mm-hmm. And start experience films and realizing that you know that's kind of your language, that's kind of your tool, and uh, and that 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 started in a way very early, and then you know there's a freaking long way to go where you have to you know really dive deep into technology and mm-hmm. is it always changing as well? And 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 the technology is changing, but also your view on what 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 is good photography or good mm-hmm. cinematography is changing all the time as well. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, in myself, for instance, in my early years, I was much more, as 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 we would say, formal. You know, I I did much more pretty pictures, and I was much more precious about how how my images would look. And you know, framing is, for instance, a thing. You know, if you if you look at painting, you have a thing that's called the golden ratio. You know, that's how you how you frame when you when you when you frame an image when you put a camera into a point a camera at something where do you put things in a certain place on the set and 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 you're always sort of imposing your studied rule of what is a good frame mm-hmm. upon that but at some point uh, i think my frame became much more visceral it became much more enslaved to not so much on how i think a frame should look but very much uh, enslaved to how people are living through the film, you know, mm. where are people looking and where should I point my camera at? And that's, and that's a, you know, a much sort of more visceral way of, of, of thinking about it in a much less precious way, in a much less aesthetic way of thinking about it. It's much, you know, it's much more, you know, it became, it became kind of much more intuitive and much, uh, yeah, much more following sort of the feeling and a flow maybe. Mm-hmm. Now I remember seeing the trailer for James Bond Spectre mm-hmm. and really noticing a change in the way it was shot and being like this looks very pretty. I know that's probably not the, mm-hmm. the, the aim but the, the use of shadows and like the, a scene in particular that really like comes to mind is when um, Christopher Waltz 
he's in darkness mm. and then he looks up and his face suddenly comes into the light i mean obviously that just the way where you you kind of you need to kind of because it's a james bond film you can't go too far but you really did change the look of that in a in a positive way mm. was that something that you obviously planned in advance well, I said in the beginning, every film is very different, you know, and 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 I think uh, James Bond is a whole different kind of spectacle, for instance, than 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 Oppenheimer. It's almost like you can think of James Bond a little bit as a cartoon character, as well as you know the preconceived ideas that people have about this about this character, you know, impose. A sort of thinking pattern on you and mm. and and then what you can do is you can break that a little bit and you can play around a little bit and you can push that around a little bit but i think that uh the, the, our last movie oppenheimer is a very different beast in that way you mm. know it's 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 in a way a place where you have to really start from scratch as well as your subject matter is just extremely um I would say it's a very important subject matter yeah. and a very, very heavy weighted subject matter, you know, and it's about uh, real choices and real implications to, you know, us today as well. And and so you you have to approach it in a very, very different way. And, and in, in many ways you have to tread lighter as well, you know, mm-hmm. especially in your in your in your film language, you know, mm-hmm. and where where in a film as James Bond, it's 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 fun to copy, you know, cartoon things or have people reveal out of light and in mm. darkness and play with the film language in that way. But 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 you know, you you kind of try to strip a story like this from that kind of drama. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that we're shooting a documentary because we're not by all means and we're trying to make it as dramatic as we can. But 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 I I I feel that you know restraint is a very important tool. You know, in in shooting something like Oppenheimer, you have to you have to you have to take a breath, and you have to mm. ask yourself the question if you're being truthful or or not. You know, I think in some ways the nuclear threat is so pervasive and insistent, and has been for so long, that it's you know it's almost like white noise around us. It's like you'd go crazy if you were paying attention to it the whole time, and so. You feel the world tune in and out of its concern on this issue, uh, but the threat has never gone away since since the day they pushed that button. Oppenheimer is based on the book American Prometheus, which is a very in-depth look at the, the history and life of J. Robert Oppenheimer. It goes into such extreme levels of detail. Sadly, um, Marty Sherman died right before we started making the, the movie, but Kai Baird came to visit the set, which was fantastic. But he's a, an incredible resource. You know, they spent many years working on this book, and there's really no aspect of Oppenheimer's life that they didn't cover. And so everyone on production regularly referred back to American Prometheus. I think normally when you're taking on a real-life character, there's a tendency to be trying to reduce the source to the essence of the person. I think with Oppenheimer, people see his loyalties differently, his actions differently. The reality is a very, very complex, enigmatic human being. And so for me, the challenge was to open up the reality of the character and really trying to see the world through his eyes. You've worked with Christopher Nolan a few times. How is it collaborating again? Was it, have you... Is, is it like kind of going back to a family? Is it something that you've kind of if you used to? You know each other's kind of patterns now when you work together? Yeah, I think um, 
getting to learn how he works on Tenet, I was really hoping and wishing that I would get to do another one with him because a big part of my job is kind of learning how to work with a director. So it's really nice when you get to work with him again. Mm. Um, so yeah, that was really satisfying to get to do a second one. I've noticed in your career, you've worked with a few people several times, as you yeah. say, it gets easier when you've worked with someone. Yeah. Writers, writer directors as well. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Which that must be fun because I guess, are they slightly more passionate maybe totally. if it's something they've written? Yeah. Every director I've worked with just is really, they really love the editing part of the film. I think they love every aspect of it, but they're super invested in the last part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there is a stigma that writers can, writer directors can be a bit precious about their work, but I found most of all the writers, directors I've worked with, they're quite um, quick and not quick, but they're so open to changing the material. And because they're so close to it and they know it so well, it's great to talk things out with them because they wrote it as opposed Mm. to working with someone who's a bit more distant from the material. And either they're like too quick to get rid of things or they just have a different relationship with the material because it's like they shot it and someone else wrote it, right? So it's, um, so yeah, working with writer directors, I I love it. And it's one of those films you think, because it's, because it's so wordy it's it's long it's got all these and you think this must be a bit of a nightmare to edit but then i thought back to the fact that you edited tenet and i I think that was probably was that even more complex that was way worse (laughs) yeah that that was a nightmare for me just because it was so many new things it's like i was working with this new director who i'd never worked with who obviously Mm. i was slightly intimidated by because they're they're quite established yeah fairly fairly (laughs) not a first time filmmaker (laughs) so like so that was intimidating and also, you know, I have to get to know the person. And on top of that, I'm doing like 10 different things I've never done before. Yeah. Um, so I think that was a huge um, learning curve for me. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So it was really nice to get to do something with Chris that I was more comfortable with. Yeah. And then also I was more comfortable with him. So it was, kind of, it was kind of a great double whammy. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to ask, my, my podcast is usually about how you know, whether you be behind or in front of the camera, how you started and how, where that love of, was editing always something that you wanted to do or how did it come about? Yeah, I mean, I've always loved movies when I was in high school and, you know, college, I went to college and um, watched films and studied films. And then when it came time to kind of make a film, Mm -hmm. I chose to make a documentary because I just didn't feel like I was ready to direct a movie and I don't like to do things if I don't feel like you know, really confident in it, which is probably a fault of mine. But so I ended up kind of shooting this documentary I had this idea for, and I had so many hours of footage and I just became, I'm like obsessed with editing this 10 minute documentary out of like this hundred hours I had shot of this, put it, this thing. So I just really enjoyed that, that process. And there was a couple other exercises we did where we had to edit on a steam back, like film stuff, kind of like change this weird bank robbery scene to like a different scene. And I mm. really loved that. So it was just something after college I felt somewhat confident in and I just kind of pursued it. I just wanted to like get to work, mm. you know, and I feel like other people wanted to direct or do things and I just wanted a job for some reason. I'd always had jobs ever since I was 14. So I just, I felt like, okay, I have this skill. I know how to do this. And I kind of just hit the ground running, pursuing it kind of right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Is there any advice you'd give to, you know, people coming in and wanting to be editors and, and getting involved? People ask me for advice a lot and so... I've kind of, I think my biggest, and I've asked other people for advice, you know, as I was coming up because it was hard, you know, I went out to LA right after school because most people I knew went to New York and I'd grown up on the East Coast, so I wanted something different. So I went out to LA all bright eyed thinking like people are going to give me a chance and I knew some, you know, I had some connections or whatever and like nobody 
would give me the time of day or they'd give me some advice like go do this or um I remember one person was like oh go find like the next Roger Corman and we're and I was like I don't know that person what do you mean I just wanted someone to teach me Avid or let me be a PA Mm -hmm. but it was it was really difficult and then I ended up back in New York I finally someone got me this amazing woman named Jennifer Lilly got me a job as an apprentice editor on a movie um and got me into the union but it took like three years of everyone kind of slamming the door in my face in Los Angeles. And, and then even once I got that big break, then I, you know, it was hard to get my next job. And Mm. so I think my advice to everyone is just like, don't be deterred or, and sometimes the worst jobs led to the best jobs. Like I would be like, Oh, I don't want to do this. And, but then through that job, I met someone else that it was a great job. So, um, you know, obviously you have to say no sometimes, but I do think it's good to, when you're younger to try to say yes to a lot. Mm, I guess, yeah, you never really know. Um, but I mean, you're at the point now where you probably would say no to most things and then, you know, pick and choose what you do. <laughs> Is that a nice, that must be great to be able to be at a level where you can kind of choose what you want to do. I'm, I mean, I'm presuming, but I mean, yeah. at your level, that must be the case. It's so funny because it really, I mean, it really wasn't, even after Tenet, because then the pandemic happened, I was like, shit, I need a job. And like, yeah. this movie didn't even come out, really. So I was panicked even after Tenet. Um, so I honestly feel like this is maybe the first time, although we just had the strikes and everything. So, you yeah. know, things are getting slow to turn up, but um, you never feel totally settled. Like there's still in the back of my mind, like what's my next job going to be? Because mm. being a freelancer is hard, you know? Mm. Like, um, So I don't think that ever truly goes away. <laughs> I swear to God. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> like I still no, have panic attacks. <laughs> that, I mean, that totally, I mean, it, it makes sense, doesn't it? It's such a volatile and um it's just one of those industries i'm an actor so i, I, oh feel, my God. I feel the pain no it really um, never goes away it's crazy <laughs> yeah i mean I've, I've been doing this like 17 years now and it's one of those things that obviously doing a podcast and things like that is is great because i get to talk to people like you yeah but it is that thing of like fill the gaps as well otherwise totally totally um, do you have like coping mechanisms in between jobs do you have things that you do i think for me i love reading i love going to see movies and i love um i have kids now and um just like seeing my friends cuz you know when i'm working as you know as an actor working on a movie like you really don't have much the, the hours suck so I've really tried to train myself to be like, even though I get panicked that I'm never going to work again, I really try to enjoy the time off because we don't get, I'm it like our jobs, one of the downsides, and there's a lot of upsides, but one of the downsides is like, we don't get like typical vacation, right? Like I don't just get to say like, I'm going to take four weeks off this summer. If I get a job, I have to work the job. So when we don't have a job, you really need to um, not stress. But honestly, it hasn't been since the last like year or two. I haven't been able, I mean, even it's a really hard thing when you're not working to not just be panicked about not working. I think you're going to be all right. <laughs> I think you'll be all right. You'll be all right. In terms of, obviously, you've done so many different jobs that are just completely different, like to cite, obviously, Tenant than Marriage Story, which is it's just like those two things are just so different. What is the process and what, what is the kind of difference between those two things when it comes to actually editing them? Mm, I think what I've learned, because I did work kind of for one director quite a long time Noah Baumbach and we had like a really great rhythm and method of working and then when I started working with other directors in between his films and stuff like that I would try to kind of apply that method Mm. and it never really worked and it actually always kind of messed me up a little bit because then I would have to like walk back from that and be like okay this isn't working so I did finally realize I think later on that like not to do that right and just meet the director even though it's terrifying not to have like your methods Mm. um, a lot of times I think those in were 
antithetical to the process, which is just like every director has their own kind of way of thinking, their own mm -hmm. process, their own relationship to making films. And you kind of have to use your use your kind of skills, and I have all these different processes now, but mold into that world. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I've learned you have to be really malleable, mm -hmm. as opposed to have like a thing you do. Sure, sure. And and to compare those, I mean, Marriage Story, I absolutely love that film, and obviously loved Oppenheimer as well. I mean, I know nothing about editing to admit that, but in terms of the way they're edited, there's still that feeling of like impending, like sort of dread and doom something is it's kind of hanging over the film almost that you know yeah. something's gonna go wrong yeah and obviously that's a mixture of all the elements but um i really felt it in marriage story particularly which, yeah which is oh. funny because it's it kind of gets claustrophobic yeah and, um, totally it's ah uh, yeah I, I absolutely love that film but the, i mean they are so different yeah. so i mean coming in and and working not only with a different director but a completely like huge scale everything's shot on imax it's all kind of quite epic and yeah. everything else i guess at the end of the day though you're still in a room yeah. on a computer editing it's kind of still yeah the same those thing. things all stay the same <laughs> yeah. which is mad which yeah is it crazy. is mad it is true in reading the script you get a sense that there is a real plan for how to make this navigable to the viewer because it is a massive story and it's got the cast of Ben-Hur and it spans decades by the end when all the elements that have been set up come together in this kind of symphonic trinity, you kind of have been guided along so you can fully experience the emotional value of it. I mean, you've worked with Christopher Nolan a few times. Yeah. Was the process on this any different to the past experiences? Well, this, yeah, this was this, my second time. So, I think the difference is that I just, I know him much better now and, and we have, you know, a, a different, you know, a, a much more of a trust within mm. each other and, and, and so I was able probably to get running right at the bat and what's so cool about his process is that we, we actually, I, I'm, I'm also one of the first persons I think to read the script. Oh, wow. And uh, I start writing music right after I read the script. And um, um, the only thing that it, the, the the one thing that the one idea that Chris had after I read the script was was he wanted the violin to um, tell the story of Oppenheimer mm -hmm. and be his instrument. Mm -hmm. And um, um, he was especially interested in how you with the violin you could depending on the performance, you know, you could have this beautiful, round, romantic vibrato, but if you, you know, if you press the finger down harder and shake your hand, within a split second, you can change the tone from something beautiful to something horrific, you know? Mm. And my, my wife, Serena, is also a very accomplished violinist, so I was able to work very closely with her and record oh. her in the beginning, so mm. it was a very personal journey for me. And, um, and what, what I was going to come to is that because we ha already have this relationship, so in the beginning when I just experiment and I was, I'm just throwing everything at the wall. I'm, I'm not scared anymore, anymore to like not playing anything. So I would just, I would just, you know, wrote a bunch of music before we started to shoot the film, and then and then played him everything, and then we sit through every week and we listen to it, and we talk about certain details or certain themes or certain sounds that stick out, mm. and then we create kind of like a our own DNA and create our sound world. Mm -hmm. 
and and Chris invites me to a bunch of like a bunch of screenings where they have the the costume tests they do different camera tests they do um visual effects experiments and most of those screens are all the screens are in a in the IMAX theater so I'm sitting there you know, reading the script look looking at these like in, incredible images I remember seeing the the Picasso painting on like a huge IMAX screen these like molecule molecules like swirling around like fire coming around um there was also a meeting where you had like a, a physicist talk about splitting the atoms and <laughs> which was a little abstract but it all helps with getting the inspiration mm -hmm. and putting myself into uh, Oppenheimer's mind and, and um, um, really a lot of the music and a lot of the sound world comes together before we start shooting the film. Mm -hmm. It really feels, I really noticed when I was watching it, there was, you know, all the elements obviously, but the music in particular, it felt like it was building this sense of dread when it was coming up to the sort of the climax of the film. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's something that you, unless you really think about it, you're like, why am I feeling so on edge? But it's all those elements. But I mean, the music really felt like it played a part in that. Um, was that an intentional thing to just slowly kind of make the audience feel more and more uncomfortable as it as it got to the kind of the big moment? I think so. I mean, you know, there's there's the there's that shift in the middle of the film where all the music up to that up to that point in the movie were where everything is just theories everything is just scribbles on a paper and then um, until you actually see the, the bomb for the first time it's an actual physical thing in that scene the music takes a big twist and, and turns into like almost like a sound design element where you have like the, the, uh, the you see the bomb they're hoisting up in the air and the music is just like this thumping bass and like a metallic ticking and this radioactive kind of sound effects mm. um and and that I think um, that add very much adds adds on to like the tension, but but also like we couldn't have that earlier. Like you have to earn that moment, you know. Mm -hmm. What's it, I mean? You've obviously you've had a long career of amazing achievements, amazing films. What's it like coming onto a for the first time when you you work with Fernando on talent? Was it was that kind of it must have been a really big moment? Was it intimidating? I mean. The scores to his previous films before that have been epic, and um, was that was that kind of a, a oh, mad yeah. moment? <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was it was it was a mad moment. Um, it was very intimidating, um, and and like you said, like all of his scores up until those, um, uh, all all of his scores have been monumental in terms of you know, look at look at how they affected the whole film industry and. and how they affected all the yeah. music for all the films. Every trailer now has yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, every trailer, every action film has been based of the Batman scores, and mm. you know. So, um, I knew, but it was also intimidating, but it was also very, very, very exciting because mm. to get an insight in his vision and to get to understand the way he works and the way he thinks about music and the way he uses music in his storytelling, mm. I was very curious and very excited to to get. Um, in on that process mm -hmm. how did um how did your career begin like what, what where did that love of you know, how did you get into music how did you uh how did that start 
Um, I got into music in a bit. Uh, my dad is a guitar teacher, so when I was about six or seven years old, he gave me a, a little um, travel guitar, like a small electric guitar, mm. and we started sitting down 10 minutes every day and play a little bit of music. And then it was another, it was nine years old when I heard Metallica for the first time, where I was like, okay, I want to do this mm. full time. Mm. And I started learning all the Metallica songs. And because I already knew how to play guitar, um, I was able to just sit there and just learn all these songs. And then it got into like, I wanted to be the best guitar player in the world. But then I also discovered jazz and then I discovered classical music. And then I got an opportunity in high school to write music for orchestra. And that was a very um, crazy visceral moment to sit there in a concert hall and hear new music being performed by a 70 piece orchestra. And I was thinking about like, how, how can I do, how, how can I do this again? And, um, and I always loved writing and producing different genres of music. And I figured also in the films, depending on what style of film it is, you can kind of mm. work around with any kind of genre. And then I remember as a kid, when I watched Kill Bill for the <laughs> first time, it was like, it was like that, that part in the score when you heard that lady, because I was a nurse whistling, that turns into score. And it was, that was also kind of a... Yeah, the music in that film is mad. Yeah, yeah. Like it's really unique. Isn't it? it is, it is very unique. After college, uh, I, I did jazz performance major in Stockholm at the Royal College of Music. And then after that, I moved to um, LA to, be, to do one year of school at USC. Mm -hmm. And that's where I met Ryan Coogler, um, who was the director at the UC, and, and we started working together. I scored his short films, mm. um, and um, and uh, I got a job right after UC as an assistant uh, for a composer in theater, Shapiro. I worked for him for three years, and he got me a job for this TV show called Community, and that's where I met Charles Gambino, and so then Charles Gambino and then Ryan Coogler were, were like two main collaborators mm. in the beginning. And we're still, I mean, we're still working today. Wow. Me and Chris, you know, we've known each other for 20 years now. And uh, if I'm lucky, he, he calls me up and asks me to be in whatever project. And there is no pre there was no preamble for this one. He just called me out of the blue and said, listen, I've got the script. It's about Oppenheimer and I'd like you to be my Oppenheimer. It was wonderful to be able to pick up the phone and call him and say, okay, this, this is it, this is the one. You get to be the lead and you get to take on a character that's going to use every aspect of your talent, your instrument. It's going to challenge you in, in ways that you've never been challenged before. And he was up for that and, and excited to get the call. And then I realized, uh, oh, that's a huge responsibility. <laughs> It's happening, isn't it? The world will remember this day. Our work here will ensure a peace mankind has never seen. Until somebody builds a bigger one. gave them the power to destroy themselves and the world is not prepared
Truman needs to know what's next. Two. What's next? One. Thank you to our guests and thank you to Organic PR. As always, thank you to our sponsor, BetterHelp.